Hello, Gasheads, and welcome to this A Chat With episode of Gascast. I'll be your host, Duke, and joining me today is a man with plenty of strings to his bow. He played for Rovers between 02 and 04 as a cultured centre-back and notched his first ever professional goal in a tool draw with York. He went on to play most of his football with Dagenham and Redbridge, where he made history as being the first British Asian to captain a league club. Post-playing, he's enjoyed time being assistant manager at several clubs, his latest being Oldershot Town, and he's also the campaigns manager for Fans for Diversity, a joint project between the FSA and Kick It Out to promote diversity in football. So if you haven't guessed already, I'm pleased to welcome Anwar Udin onto GasCast. How you doing, Anwar? I am very well, thank you, and uh, always a pleasure to, to be talking to you. Yeah, I, I, I had to take uh, several breaths introducing you there. I mean, you've got many <laughs> strings to your bow, as, as I say, you've got, got a lot going on. But let's start with the most important moment of your career, obviously playing for Bristol Rovers. You, you managed to notch 19 league appearances after joining us from West Ham via Sheffield Wednesday. Um, how do you reflect on your time with Rovers? Yeah, I mean, listen, I absolutely loved being um, a Rovers player. I loved living in Bristol. Um, but I have to say, when I look back at my time at the club, it's kind of a little bit of... It upsets me and it's sad because it was a... A horrific time in my life, actually. I mean, I was I was young and enthusiastic, and I just wanted to play football. And having had an education at West Ham, which was unbelievable, playing with world class players, it was very frustrating to kind of get so close to that first team. But you know, waiting for Rio Ferdinand and Stuart Pearce to have a bad game got got a little bit boring. So I I decided to leave and just try and get some football. Went to Sheffield Wednesday. They had a really um, outrageous kind of financial situation which come out of nowhere and then I found myself at Bristol Rovers so I was I was buzzing just to be at a club where fans love football it's a decent level with good players and uh, I found my feet and uh, I was absolutely loving it and then unfortunately one of the worst things about football and footballers and I had a really really bad complex injury at a time where I literally was was probably the happiest I've ever been. I was young, I was playing football, I was enjoying myself. And um, I was out for a long, long time and it kind of derailed my Rovers career, if I'm honest. Mm. So it's uh, for me, it's really, really, really interesting that when I talk to Rovers fans, they, they remember me, but not only remember me, they're, they're actually quite fond of me. And considering I didn't play much, I think, you know, that was really, really kind of like highlights what a positive ex- experience it was because... To be honest, like I said, I mean, I was in Bristol for two and a half years and a year and a half of that, maybe more, I was injured and, um, you know, got to know a lot of the club, got to know a lot of fans. But, you know, I wished I could play a hell of a lot more than I did. Yeah, because like you say, that this was your first real run of games in the first team. Um, so, yeah, for the injury to, to come when it did was, as, as you say, it was just awful timing, really. Um, how How did you end up? come into Rovers as we say you had your, your, your footballing education at West Ham you just couldn't quite get in ahead of Rio Ferdinand which is is no disgrace really then then I was, I was reading with um, Sheffield Wednesday it, it was part of the ITV digital debacle so, so they had really bad 
financial difficulty. So with Sheffield Wednesday, did you actually play with them or did you just kind of go there and then the financial circumstances meant you had to move on once again? Yeah, so I went there and I signed a long-term contract and it was about building a new team. They'd just been relegated from the Premier League and they wanted to create a, a youthful team, a team that could be together for you know five years with the eventual aim of getting back into the Premier League. So everything was great. It was a perfect opportunity and I had lots of opportunities to, to go to different clubs. And for me, Sheffield Wednesday, massive club, great fan base. It ticked every single box and literally I got there you know, in and around the first team. And for me, as the manager said, you know, I was a, a long-term replacement for the two centre-halves that were there that were coming to the end of their career. And at the end of the season, they, they, they basically said to every single player that you're available on a free, you can't honour your contract. In fact, we're going to have to give you, at best, a third of what we've offered. And wow. um, for, a player, for a player who lives in London and needs to buy a house, etc., etc., it was... It was a tough thing to take, but ultimately you're back on the transfer list. And then all of a sudden there was a lot more interest. And it was just a case of, well, if I stay at Sheffield Wednesday, I'm, I'm not even sure that they will honour my contract, the money in which they can pay me. It was a really, really uncertain time. And basically everyone just left. And um, I started to have some conversations with other clubs. And then Bristol Rovers came in and they were like, look, we want you here. We want you to play. And to be honest, I got bored of kind of, being at great clubs with great players, I just wanted to be at a club where I could play football. That was yeah. it. All I wanted to do was play. I felt I was good enough. I just needed an opportunity. And I was confident that if I can go to a team like Bristol, I'd get straight into the first team. And you know, once I'm playing, you know, the rest is what I do best. And um, I think it was the right decision because obviously I, I played straight away and you know, started the season really well. Um, you know, I, I had conversations with clubs after 10, 15 games at Bristol, you know, big clubs about going at the end of that, that first season already because they were monitoring me. But, yep, like I said, injury struck and it kind of, yeah, derailed my my time at Rovers, but also, um, you know, my career as a whole. So, yeah, it's uh, it's something that all footballers have to contend with. But, you know, to have an injury like that at an early stage of my career was psychologically quite tough to deal with. Yeah, so, so for those who don't remember what what exactly was was the injury and and how come it um meant you were out for so long so i had an initial uh it was was an issue with my groin um but what they didn't realize that i had two separate injuries uh, an injury to my lower stomach and my adductor and basically the, the adductor tear that i had was literally you know with most tears it's like a little tear takes a few weeks but you know, my tear was that severe, they, they almost severed. Um, so I had to have that restitched, attached to the bone, you know, and it was a, it was a long, long while for me to, to get back to my best, back to my physical best. And then even when I did return, it was, it was a horrible time because we started okay. And then the team had two bad injuries against, I think it was uh, York away. I scored and then I sort of picked it up around that time and myself and Vitas Astavius got oh, injured. What, what, what a player he was, by the way. What, what, what did you make of Vitas? <laughs> so we got injured around the same time. Vitas was, I mean, what a player he was. I mean, I remember when I joined, um, they were saying to me, we've got this, uh, this lad, Latvian captain. And um, it was interesting because the first few weeks, Vitas didn't hardly say anything. And I remember... Yeah being in the gym with him one time. I've never heard the geezer speak and he was an unbelievable football player. And I, and I genuinely thought he couldn't 
speak English or <laughs> didn't understand the language. And then, and then one day was in the gym and that was it. He just started talking and he, and he wouldn't shut up. And I was like, Vitas, I didn't realize you could speak English. He went, I just don't like to say much, but when I speak, people listen. And I was like, okay. And then uh, we ended up rooming together and then um, he didn't shut up after that. So it was, it was oh, quite interesting. It? Yeah, like, not, think, not a I man think, of many words, but you know, to be fair, he's football did the talking. Yeah, ex- exactly. I've, I've just about to, to say that. So, so he's quite quite a good character once you got to to know Vitas. Yeah, I mean, he he came across as like the Terminator. Didn't say a word. Just had this steely look in his eye. But in training, everyone was like, "Mate, this guy is unbelievable." But obviously, um, I spent a little bit of time with him. Obviously, having to room with him and stuff, and then. Literally, like almost literally overnight, it was like, wow. And, and I, I used to see a very different side to him the most. But that was just what he was. He was a private person and, um, you know, what a player. And like I said, the club at that time, I, I thought we had a really good little squad, a young squad. We had some really talented players. Uh, but me and Vitas, we got injured around the same week. And I remember the club struggled a little bit after that because I think, listen, obviously I was playing centre half, but Vitas was probably our best player, I'd say. Um, and then in terms of my recovery, it was like, let's get Amwar back. Let's get Amwar back. We need to get Amwar back. And I think that probably wasn't the best thing in the world because I really, I should have took my time and made sure I was right. Because I remember coming back in a behind closed doors game at Peterborough away. And um, yeah, went in for a challenge and basically went back to square one. So mm. in hindsight, you know, wish I could have done it all again, but it is what it is. Yeah. And, and you mentioned the the psychological impact of the injury I mean how on earth do you cope with an injury like that considering it's the start of your career also and and was there much support around the the mental side of it because I mean we're looking at the early 2000s and mental health wise things have come on leaps and bounds so, so how was that period for you mentally I mean it was tough but I think what made it um easier for me was the fact that Bristol's such a cool place with unbelievable people. So, like I said, I played the first sort of 20 games. I remember living in a Jury's Inn, a hotel, because I hadn't bought my house and I was literally living in the hotel and I was there for three months and I got to know loads of people around the town. I got to know all the staff and you know what? It was fun. I mean, I, I did feel like Alan Partridge. Was <laughs> yeah. but you weren't bringing a, like, a big plate down for, for breakfast, were you? Yeah, it was it was just a cool time and a cool place and everyone was cool and it was interesting that I had a few friends that was at the uni so I wasn't alone yeah um, so it, it was really really good but obviously when you get injured I moved into a house and I got injured and all of a sudden I was in this house on my own all day every day and I couldn't train so I ended up um, joining like the most random doing the most random things I joined like a chess club a squash club at the, at the next generation gym yeah I started helping um you know, local football club. I started doing stuff with the elderly. I genuinely was doing anything to keep myself occupied and kind of not just going, right, wake up, go to the gym, see the mm. physio, go home, relax all day and repeat. You know, I tried to kind of embrace, the, the, you know, the, the Bristol and all the people in it. And to be fair, I met some amazing people. So, and the, and the gas fans were unbelievable. Literally, wherever I'd go, you're always having conversations and people are happy to see you. And I just felt like that was, yeah, it was, it made it an enjoyable experience. And um, I loved it. Yeah, I loved it. But as I say, I was just buzzing to play. I remember my, uh, my, my debut away to Torquay and um, you know, you're thinking about your first game at a club and how it's going to be. And I remember um, 
getting a newspaper afterwards and the next day and getting a man of the match performance and you know, you know all that sort of stuff and I felt like yeah this is my time now you know a great club great fans um, just want to enjoy it so yeah it was just uh, really frustrating but you know like like anything you know you've got to make the best of a bad situation. Yes yeah, so I, I suppose Bristol Rovers loss was uh, the community's gain as it sounded like you, you're a real pillar of the community when, when you're off playing um what, what sort of area did you move to when you um, moved into a house so i um i didn't know the area at all i had no clue where anything was so i kind of are based on, on logic and geography so i thought i need to be near the m4 so i can get home i need to be near a place where i can go shopping etc etc so i ended up living in bradley stoke um, yeah, I think that's quite a, quite a classic footballer area for for Rovers players. Actually, was, was yeah. there many other players near you, and, and did you kind of knock about with a few of them? Yeah, so a lot of the boys lived in kind of Emerson's Green um, over that way. I was very tempted to live on the Triangle, but to me, I just felt like you know what, I want to be away from it all. I want to you know, get a little place I can shoot home if I need to, and it was just a nice little place to be honest. And um, it worked out quite well actually because um, I think strangely enough when um, when I end up selling the house I read a news story that Bradley Stoke the house price has increased more in Bradley Stoke than anywhere else in the UK over that three-year period so literally it was a it was a masterstroke yeah I, I, I mean Bradley Stoke is has got the um, the nickname around these parts as sadly broke because it was <laughs> um, yeah it was, it was like a brand new housing estate that got bills and, and then like your house prices plummeted at, at that time. So yeah, it's, it's good to hear that you kind of get got out of the the right time um, house price wise. So so it sounds like even though on the pitch, like obviously the injury really scuppered your, your chances at, at Rovers. It, it sounds like you you had an enjoyable couple of years in Bristol. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, when I look back now, it does make me laugh because football is, is a crazy thing. I remember uh, actually signing for, for Bristol. The way that came about was quite funny. I was on a train to sign for Swansea and I had a meeting with Swansea and uh, they took me around the ground, showed me the club and they sat me down and they said to me, I kid you not, they said to me, we have got a 10-year plan. We aim to build a new stadium. We aim to get into the Premier League we aim to put this club on the map and we see yourself and um, another young lad called Leon Britton, who was at West Ham at the time. Yeah. We see you two as the kind of the core of, of this plan. So I was like, listen, sounds good to me. Um, it was far, but it seemed like a nice place. And to be honest, for me, it was just about playing. I didn't really care where it yeah. was. You know, I, I'm a footballer. I want to play. So, yeah. I was literally on the train uh, to Swansea from, from London and I was at Reading. I got a call from John Steele and he was like, I heard you're going to Swansea. I said, yeah. I said, who's this? He said, it's John Steele. Just got the job at Bristol Rovers. Uh, tried to sign you about 10 times when I was at Barnet. He said, can you get off of um, at Bristol and have a chat with me? I said, uh, well, I guess I can because it's kind of on the way and it literally was on the way. Mm. And he he said to me, he said, uh, Swansea told you about their 10-year plan and their new stadium? I said, I said yeah. He went, load of rubbish. He went, <laughs> he went come off. Oh, he, went, dear. he went, come off. We're going to build a new stadium. We've got a 10-year plan. And, uh, we want you to be part of it. And um, oh, yeah, no. I got off and signed for Bristol Rovers. So there you go. 
Um, apologies, Amar. That's that's all I can say. If if you spoke to any gas ed and um, John told you about uh, a, a new stadium on its way, we we could have uh, saved you the hassle of uh, letting you know it was all BS. Listen, it all worked out in the end because the Swans ended up going to uh, the Premier League. I think Leon Britton's a legend there. At the club, yeah, so yeah. To be honest, it's probably best for Swans that I didn't go. And, <laughs> yeah, always well that ends well. Yeah, indeed. So that leads us on quite nicely to your, your Dagenham days. Obviously, John Steele with the Rovers connection. He, he was assistant, as as you say. Um, so I'm guessing John Steele was instrumental in, in you joining Dagenham? Yeah, so when he got the job, I was still at Bristol Rovers. And um, he literally got the job and he rang me up the next day and he said, um, how are things? How are you? I said, I'm getting there. I'm fit now. I said, I feel um, I feel okay. I feel like I'm, I'm over the worst. I'm sort of in and around the first team squad, but at that time, Rovers, and rightly so, they recruited a, a few more centre halves because you know, they couldn't sort of wait for me forever. But the, the issue that I had with Rovers was that so many managers came and went. It was almost like when every manager came, they bring a new set of players. Mm. New manager came and they bring a new set of players. And it was almost like I was a forgotten man. And at the end of the season, John still just said to me, Look, come back to London. If you're fit, Dagenham will get the best out of you help us and we'll help you because I just needed to play. And it made, it made sense. Listen, if I'm going to have a struggle with injury, I'd rather be at home in London, close to my family, um, than you know, being at home alone in Bristol. So, yeah, I was the first signing uh, for, for John Dagnum. I was the first player to ever be on a full-time contract. And he's, it, John, was, it, John was honest with me. He said, look, the club's a national league club. But I want to try and do things the right way. And if I can get someone like you and build a team around you, if you can stay fit, which obviously was the that was the magical thing, um, you know, I believe we can potentially, you know, crazy to say it, but get into the football league. And I went to Dagenham, I was there for five years, and for five years I was genuinely fit for five years. Yeah. And uh, not only did we get into the league, we got into League One. We had two promotions. I was captain, I did three hundred games for the club. And, um, you know, it was amazing because literally, if you compare the two clubs, Dagenham and Bristol Rovers, that, you know, you can't compare the clubs. But mm. Dagenham was the team in the National League that we got to League One. So we ended up playing against my old teams, Sheffield Wednesdays and Charlton's. And, and I felt like because I was fit and I was able to just play, they got the best out of me. And, and I look back and, and I wish I could have done that for Bristol because I feel like, you know, I'm confident in my ability and I felt like if I would have been in a team and fit, I, I, I feel like I would have benefited any for any team. Um, but luckily for Dagnum, obviously, they got me at the right time and, you know, I got fit. And, um, yeah, I mean, to go from National League to League One, listen, at any level, in any part of the world, that is a, a great achievement. And I think what people don't realise is that our budget and the size of our club is so small think nowadays it will be very difficult to actually recreate something similar to that because it literally was a miracle we had part-time players all young all on very small amounts of money considering if you look at players in the leagues and then we ended up in league one playing against Sheffield Wednesday and Charlton so it was it was crazy but for me, I felt like I needed that because I felt like if, you know, I felt like just somebody please give me the opportunity to play football and I promise you, I'll repay you. And, and, and that's what I did at that. Yeah, so so John was actually telling the truth this time at, at Dagenham when he said we're going to get in the Football League. It actually happened as opposed to his um, 
his BS chatting about Rose and the and a new stadium. So at least he got that one right. And it it, it sounded like you were one of the the main men at Dagenham as well. And as you, as you say, you really punched above your weight, and and you went on to to captain the side as as well. Um, so so what was it like being the the Dagenham captain and 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 being? I imagine you're you're a bit of a legend around those parts. Well, I mean, it was an amazing time because obviously, exactly as you said, you know, like the old Wimbledon, uh, mm. the late 90s, where no one gave them a chance. They, they were unconventional, they were the underdogs, but they succeeded. We, it was very much like that. And we loved the fact that no one liked us. No one liked coming to Dagnum. It was a small pitch in the middle of nowhere. It wasn't glamorous at all. But for me, you know what? I think... Some players nowadays, there are these huge clubs with great fan bases, great training facilities, great stadiums. They don't know they've lived. You know, they don't realise yeah. what an opportunity that is because at Dagenham, we were literally a club that signed players like myself that were either injured, released, rejected. We had, we had, a, we had, a, we had literally a team full of those sort of individuals. But what mm. we created was a family environment um, and we appreciate every single thing about that club. And it was like, uh, okay, you know what? We're not playing for a League One club on loads of money with a great training ground. But you know what? If we get our head down, work together as a team and give it everything we've got, we could potentially play at the same league as them, play at the same level as them. And that's what we did. And for me now, um, I look back at those times and as a coach and a manager now, you know, it's about making sure players literally empty the tank every time they cross that line. It's about making sure players appreciate the opportunity that they have, that millions, literally millions, would love to have. Because I do think some players, especially the younger players, mm. actually don't realise what an opportunity they have. Because if they do it right, they can achieve, you know, a life and a lifestyle that is, is literally, I mean, it's the best thing in the world. Um, so, you know, for me to sort of have that at a club where we didn't have much, you know, and then to go on to, you know, like went on to play for Barnet and we had an amazing training ground, amazing club, had everything at our disposal. It just makes you appreciate the finer things and it makes you appreciate the fans and, and the club. And, you know, even to this day, I mean, Dagnum fans, you know, it's sort of, yeah, an extended part of the fan. Every time I go back there, everyone still remembers me. You know, there's a mural of me on the stadium. That, you know, oh, nice. So like, it's, you know, what? and the thing is, with some people's career, you know, you can dot around football clubs. And, yeah. But do you ever have, have you ever got, you know, a little bit of history that no one can take away? And for some people might say, yeah, but it's only Dagenham and Redbridge. But to me, it doesn't matter. Like yeah. Dagenham and Redbridge were in League One. Dagenham and Redbridge won the National League. And Dagenham and Redbridge one league two I was the captain of that club when that happened that will stay with me forever and I think that's what you want as a football player if you can hang your boots up and look back and go you know what I won that cup or you know what I've got man of the match then or you know what you know I was a crowd favorite if you can have a few of those things trust me it makes all the hard work worthwhile yeah mate it, all day every day for me you, you do see some of these players you alluded to it they kind of they they they're kind of middling a little bit, kind of picking up a paycheck, and obviously it's it's okay at the time it could be comfortable. But when you look back, and as as you well know, a football career is 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 very short. So to be able to have those memories that you had, um, it's just 
where if it's weight and gold and like, you can't really put a, a price tag on it, can you? Um, so being captain of Dagenham, not not only would that be um, a, a really great thing to, to have for yourself personally and, and a, an incredible honour, um, it also set a, a rather surprising record for, for some, though I imagine for others it, this wouldn't have come as a shock that by being captain of Dagenham, you were the first British Asian to captain a side in the football league. I mean, first of all, were you aware of that stat when you were given the armband or, or was it something you heard about further down the line? To be honest, everything I did, um, I, I broke a record. It's, it's a really unique uh, career and mm. perspective that I've had because when I signed for West Ham, in 1997, my first Premier League contract, I was the first British Asian to ever do that. Had the press conference, I was asked loads of questions, and why, why is there such a lack of Asian representation, players, coaches, managers? And literally, most things I would do, because there was none before me, would literally be a record. So, mm. captaining a team in, 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 in a league, lifting a trophy at Wembley, um, management in league when I took over at Barnet in league two as assistant manager with my former teammate at Rovers, uh, Giuliano Grazioli. So all these sort of things you, you kind of don't realize at the time because you're just cracking on, but you know, you do something and then it's like, you see it on social media or the news. Um, oh, a new record. Um, I'm already uh, Asian captain ever in, in the UK. And yeah, listen, it's unbelievable for me. And it's one of the reasons that drives me. But it's 2012 at the time. I remember um, having this discussion on, on a BBC show and saying that, you know, the Asian population in this country is vast and the Asian community have been here for 30, 40 years. You know, yes, it's brilliant that this is happening, but we need to see real change. We need to see more Asian players in and around the leagues, at coaching positions, in, in you know, staffing positions. Hopefully this sparks that conveyor belt and I think it did initially. I think you saw the likes of Zesh Remen, Michael Chopra, Harpal Singh, a few players that came and played and made a mark. And all of a sudden it went quiet for literally about 10 years. And then all of a sudden now you've got a few more that are in and around it. You've got Hamza Chowdhury at Leicester, you know, making you know, a name for himself at a very, very highest level. Danny Bart at Wolves, Neil Taylor at Villa. So you've got a few players now to, to sort of mention and regard. But it was crazy in that... And when I was first starting, there literally was no one else. You know, you're, you're doing something and you're very much one of a kind, which I found quite crazy. But having experienced some of the experiences of, that I've, I've had, having seen some of the things I've seen and heard some of the things that I've heard, I'm not quite surprised because mm. I think one, one thing that is a fact, and people would argue about this and people have differences in opinions, but I've lived through it. So... I'm not being, you know, I'm not assuming or I'm not suggesting, I'm, I'm being factual that it's a difficult situation and being a pro football player is hard at the best of times. And that's the main reason why there are a lack of any community that do it because it's very difficult. Mm. But when you throw into the mix behaviour, uh, treatment, racism, discrimination, you know, it makes something that's extremely hard even harder, even if that's possible. And, um, you know, for someone like me, I, I probably had to go 
to achieve what some people would have to achieve 100%. Now, listen, that don't make mathematical sense, mm. but, but neither did my experiences because, you know, football's a ruthless, horrible industry where you've got competition. Players don't want you to play. You know, you go to a new club, they don't want you to settle in because ultimately you're taking someone's place. Um, and sometimes the terminology, the behaviours, the jokes, you know, it's it's inappropriate, it's offensive. And when there's no Asian player in any changing room at any part of the club or anywhere, yeah, it's fair game. We can say what we want. We can do what we want. There's no one here. No one's going to complain. But then when that does start to change, when you have people like me in dressing rooms, all of a sudden you're questioning things. Excuse me, but I'm not having that. And you create that that debate. And, and that's why I think I was always made captain at every club I played for because I, I, I made a conscious decision that I'm not going to go into changing rooms like I did when I was a kid, sit there and listen to rubbish, listen to racist jokes. And by the way, it's not just towards my people that look like me or Asian people, Muslim people. Mm. I'm offended when people are offensive towards anyone. Yeah. Because I'm sitting here and there's no black people in the room. Let's not start doing black jokes. Or because I'm sitting here and there's a black lad sitting there and there's no Jewish people here, let's not start making Jewish jokes. You know, let's start making jokes about people of faith with disabilities. And I think that's what it was like. Banter was basically whatever goes, like that's how it is. And um, I just made sure that every change in room I was in, like lads, like we are going to have a laugh. We're going to be, we're going to go to a war together. But there's a line that we don't cross. And that line is about, have an understanding about difficulty making this place an inclusive environment. So if someone steps into this club, someone comes into this, this changing room, they could be gay, they could be Jewish, they could be anything. They're going to feel more at home here than they would in their own household. That's the, that's the environment I want to create. And you know what? It worked because every environment that we created, we discussed Dagenham. When you create that environment, when you can create a place where regardless of difference, we're all here to, to win. And we're all here to make sure that we're each other. We're all happy. Because when you're happy, you can just concentrate on your football. Mm. When you're happy, you ain't got to worry about, oh, you know what? Are they going to mention this? Or are they going to make a joke about this? All that stuff is gone. Leave that at the front door. We're here to play football. We're here to work. But for a lot of people, groups, this is the stuff you have to deal with. It's a fact. And it makes things harder. So, my advice to anyone is, if you're a good human being, don't make things harder. You know, be, be, be understanding, have, a, have empathy, um, because there wasn't a lot of that in football, especially back in the day. Um, but like I said, for me, it was an incentive. You know, what a great incentive to be the first of anything. Mm. And that's why, you know, I kind of, I listened to the things and I had the arguments, I had the debates. And more importantly, I'm not going to let ignorance stop me from achieving my goal. But unfortunately... That there is about character. Mm. So, and there's not there's a load of kids, there's a load of young kids that don't have that character. And why should they? You're young. You just want to go and play football. So you choose not to, to, to sort of not put yourself in those situations. And probably that kind of lends us to some of the answers as to why there are such a lack of Asian players playing football in this country. But I think times have changed. Things have improved. I still think there's a load of improvement to go. But I think now we're at a stage where, you know what? At Rovers, if you've got a striker who's Asian, Muslim, Jewish, gay, straight, listen, as long as he's a, he's a, he, he, he puts everything he can for the shirt, 
The fans are going to love him and support him. And that's the key thing. And I think that's where we need to get to. Yeah, so, so what, what do you think the, the main issue is? Do you think it is just that, that lack of um, understanding, uh, uh, ignorance, would you call it that the fact that you're not seeing many British Asian people playing professionally, that kind of just means that the discrimination is more likely to be there. So, so is, is it as simple as initiatives like Fans for Diversity, which we'll go into more detail shortly, about trying to get more diverse people into the professional game and, and by its very nature, having, um, having more people from diverse backgrounds that will just help with, with the harmony in the, in the game? Definitely listen. I mean, I can only give you the kind of anecdotal like experiences of my family, of, of, of my career, of my life. And obviously, being in the position that I'm in, I speak to people all the time every single day about this. And let's look at the Asian community because we're talking about me as a player and the lack of Asian representation. When my dad came over to this country, he loved football, absolutely loved football. But he stayed so far away from football in this country because he just felt it was dangerous. He was scared. The issues he had when West Ham or Millwall played at home mm. as an Asian man working in a restaurant in East London were scary. I mean, I grew up with, with crazy stories that he used to tell me. You know, on match days, he'd have bricks through his window, um, you know, offensive stuff sprayed on his restaurant. And he was like, you know what? They don't like me because of the colour of my skin and who I am. Football fans are hooligans they're this they're that all the stereotypical things you hear about football fans that was that initial relationship between the Asian community and football in the 70s and 80s so what they did was they just stayed, stayed away so their children and their children and their children when they said oh dad can we go to a football game like most people in this country be like yeah cool let's go and watch a, a local game father takes son great family experience great bonding experience when I asked my dad to go and watch West Ham he said to me that's probably the worst place you can ever go because I fear for your safety and I'm not taking you because I won't be able to confidently say we will be okay. So I never went to watch my local team. The relationship I had and my dad had with football was match of the day. Um, so listen, fans have changed. You know, we're not in the dark, uh, bad days of hooliganism in this country and stuff, but there is an element of that that still exists. And there is an element of that that will always exist. But the problems that we have in terms of racism and discrimination in, in football are reflective of society. It's not just a football problem. These are problems we have in our schools, on our streets, with people every single day. So this is a problem we need to tackle holistically. But I think the only way we're going to do that is by everyone embracing football for what it is. Listen, if you want to be a football player, be a football player. Because of the colour of your skin or your religion doesn't mean you shouldn't or couldn't or won't. If you want to go and watch football, go and watch football. You know, um, Will there be... You know, the, the, the occasional chant or, or, you know, or issue. Yes, there probably will, because like I said, there's always a minority. But I think it's about time that everyone embraces what it is. And I think what will happen, and it's starting to happen, is that minority will become a minority that everyone looks at that minority and goes, wow. It's a little bit like smoking. I remember when, when people started stopping smoking. Initially, no one really cared. But now if you smoke somewhere, everyone's like, everyone looks at you and go, oh, yeah, they're smoking. Mm. I think it's, 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 it, we, we have to understand that this country is the way it is. There are communities, there are pockets of communities in, in all of our towns and cities. 
And the stadium should be open for everyone. It should be there for everyone. Not just the stadium, grassroots football teams, all that sort of stuff. If you live in this country and you want to embrace this country and for all it is, football is a big part of that. And I think for those that are you know, still making it hard for others to play or watch, they need to look at themselves and realise that it's 2020 now and you know, it's all about being open and welcoming. Yes, that brings us on quite nicely to your role with the FSA and and kick it out on their Fans for Diversity project. I mean, how did this opportunity come about? And and also, can you explain a bit more about what Fans for Diversity does? Yeah, so Fans for Diversity is a campaign that basically tries to make football as inclusive as possible, tries to make football as welcoming, as inclusive, so that everyone can feel comfortable watching a non-league, a Premier League game um, anywhere in the country. Um, so the reason it came about, and it was it's, it's a crazy story. I mean, I I played until I was 31, 32. I broke my ankle and I really struggled to, to get back into full-time football. So I decided to look at my experiences. And, and you know what? I look back at my life in football and I think, there are some crazy things that are still going on in, in today's society and in football. And you know what? I hear a lot of talk. I hear a lot of interviews and the same people on TV. But who's actually doing anything about it? And I mean doing. I'm talking about action. Not, you know, T-shirts or campaigns or banners. Who's actually going out there and attacking it, you know, head on? Who's doing that? And I, and I felt like I wanted to do that. And, you know, I had... Um, coaching career ready and lined up after football but this means so much to me that I thought you know what let me let me flirt with this and see if I can actually contribute towards positive change because I don't want to be having the same conversations in 20 years time in 30 years time 40 years time so I, I contacted the FSA who had a job going and it was all about creating a new campaign contacted them after doing some work for the PFA and, and the FA around education around anti-racism education I got the job and literally it was like okay and well, perfect, let's start a campaign that works with football fans to try to basically get as many people watching and as many people kind of helping towards creating that positive experience. Um, I give it a name, Fans for Diversity, and five years on, we are literally responsible for thousands of underrepresented communities who now watch live football. We've created well over 200 uh, events and activities, probably around 100 new supporters group from like, the AME community, the LGBT community, different faith groups. We've kind of connected the communities up to the wider fan groups at clubs or the trusts or the traditional support groups. And we basically said to everyone at the club, look, you've got loads of people in your community. Let's get everyone watching the local club. And then when they're there watching it, what can we do about making sure that it's a positive experience? How can we make sure that everyone enjoys their time watching a Bristol Rovers, a Plymouth Fargal, a Bradford? Um, and, and, that's what we've been, and it's been amazingly successful because we've opened the door to football for thousands of people that have, have never really thought it was a, an option to do so. And once they've got involved in a football club, once they're captured by that bug that we'll have, oh, literally it changes their life. And, and I've seen this firsthand. Um, there's a group I started in Bradford called the Bangla Bantams. And the reason I started them was because, so I played at Bradford for like six years. I was in, in League Two with them for six years. And they had amazing following, always around twelve to 14,000. And around Bradford, around the stadium, I don't know if anyone's ever been there, but it is literally, I'd say, 95% Bangladeshi. And when I used to play there, I used to think, 
how can there not be any Bangladeshi people watching me play? Yeah. No Lionel Messi, but yeah. I'm like, here's a Bangladeshi player. There's a massive Bangladeshi community. Yeah, Come yeah, and watch yeah. it. So you can kind of say to your son or your daughter, look, 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 like it can happen. This is possible. But, um, but it's I like, I would like you to expand on this a little bit, Anwar. I, I mean, so it's often a stereotype that people from particularly Asian communities, Bangladeshi communities, I hear this a lot. They just don't like football. If they liked football, they would come. I mean, what what is your kind of reaction to that sort of statement and, and your experience of the Bangladeshi community who lived the stone's throw away from Valley Parade? Listen, that is a stereotype and all stereotypes are, 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 are what a stereotype is. It's such a generalisation. It's, it's farcical. I'm telling you now, the love for football from the Asian community is ridiculous to a point where all over the country you've got Asian leagues, Asian teams. And I say to myself, that's great, but for me that's counterproductive because why, why is there all these Asian leagues, Asian teams? And the reason is because they've given up on mainstream football. They've gone, well, we don't want to go to a team because we suffer racist abuse, there's this, there's that. So we start our own team where we know we can play, we know we can enjoy it, and we can support our own teams. Now, that's great. It, it improves participation. But for me, there's enough football clubs to support. There's enough football teams to play for. There's not a need to create your own. I do think it's a good idea, but I think sometimes we can isolate ourselves and it becomes a them and us and them over there and them over there. And I think that can be counterproductive. But like I said with Bradford, I started to introduce the community to the fans, the community to the club. We started to go to games once a month, then once every other week, then once every week. Five years later, the Bangla Bantams have got hundreds of season ticket holders from the Asian community. And I remember going to watch Rochdale with, with about 25 of the, of the British Asian community around Valley Parade. And I remember going with an auntie, mm. 56 years old, with a hijab on. We're playing Rochdale. Bradford playing Rochdale. Rochdale scored. They're in purple. She's got up and celebrated. Oh, and I was like, no, no, what are you doing? What are you doing? I said, that's Rochdale. She's like, oh, I just thought it was a goal. And I, was like, <laughs> and I said, no, no, no. Bradford are the, are, are the other colour. Rochdale are purple. We don't. We, we support the amber team. Yeah, okay, and then that's crazy, right? But you think to yourself, how would she know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, we assume like, and this is what annoys me with some football clubs. They go right, let's dish out loads of free tickets. People turn up, and it's like, okay, well, this is good. there's no context to that. Mm. Who are they playing? Why are they playing? What's the, you know, it's like anything. If you go and watch a movie, a trailer gets you up for it, doesn't it? You know, this is a top of the table clash. He's our best player. This team used to be in the Premier League. Do you know this? Do you know that? If you can give a little bit of that to some of the new people that come in, they'll go, okay, this is great. And then the football takes care of itself. And that's what's been happening at at, at Bradford. So when I was playing, like I said, looked around the stadium, no Asian faces. Now the Bangla Bantams have got, Asian men, women, boys, girls, singing songs, buying Bradford shirts. And I'm hoping in another two, three years, when you walk around uh, you know, the, the streets in Bradford, there's going to be more Bradford kits as opposed to Manchester United and Liverpool kits because that came from their dads and their dads having a relationship with Match of the Day because football wasn't a safe place to go. That's, it, it's, it's, about, it's about sort of changing that circle and, and saying, okay, listen, you've got a local team that's literally across the road from your house playing a decent brand of football. Football is about your local team, you know, about where you're from. That's what it's all about. You know, that tribal mentality of, you know, we live in Bradford, that's our team. You know, I'm an East Londoner, you know, and West Ham's my team because 
it's it's the team that was closest to where I live. Mm. You know, all my friends support West Ham. It's an East London team. Why the hell am I going to support anywhere else? You know, I'm proud to be from East London, and that's about what we want to try and 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 get all the underrepresented communities to actually realise and say, look, you know, listen, everyone loves Liverpool, Arsenal, Man United, they're great, but you know what? You've got a local team that needs your help and support, and um, you can buy into that get involved in the fairy tale that is Bradford or Bristol Rovers because every club has its own fairy tale um, if you can do that the rest takes care of itself yes yeah, so and that's um, yeah so it's, it's, like it's, gonna... it's about two main things getting loads of people to watch football as many as possible but number two is also about when everyone's there when we are watching on a match day how can we make sure that match day is, is as welcoming, as inclusive as possible? We don't want to sanitise the game. Uh, but, and I think that's really important to say. We don't want to change the game. We love the raw atmosphere. You know how it's aggressive at times and there's that away and home sport. I think there's a line that we have to be conscious of because you know when we start to be discriminative with our chants, our words, then it becomes a place where would you take your children to that game would you know would it be a safe place for underrepresented groups to go and watch uh, when effectively you know they could they could they could report hate crime um, and that's I think what we need to sort of just make sure that football fans are aware of yeah I think for, for me like I I really want to echo what what you say about the, the power of the the game to promote inclusivity and not wanting to sanitize the game at the, the, the same time I mean the, the two aren't mutually exclusive. I mean, one of my main things I, I love about supporting Rovers, especially with our fierce rivalry with the other team over the uh, over the river, is the tribalism of football. I, I kind of, I, I love that. But a lot of it does spill over into discrimination where it will be based on someone's race or religion. You only got to look at some of the, the chants that, that get, Sung, so so it's, it's it's about keeping that essence of football, but yeah, just, just making sure discrimination based on what is protected characteristics, which is against the law to discriminate against, um, that that isn't in the game anymore. So so with with Rovers specifically, I mean, really fascinating to hear about the Banglam Bantams. I mean, we haven't got those diverse neighborhoods like right kind of surrounding the mem is, is a bit bit more of an affluent area kind of your kind of bishopston area and kind of Hawfield is is not much bme fans there or potential fans but you kind of look stones throw away you kind of st paul's and eastern where the bme community is is massive and i've i've played football quite a lot at that simple simple's leisure center eastern also and you've only got to go down stapleton road for example and, and see how many football crazy people there are down those streets and they're kind of in these bars and, and cafes watching the premier league so could you see a similar thing like the bangla bantams happening in Bristol for Rovers and, and how do you make that, that happen? 100%. If you had said to me five years ago when I started this campaign that 
you'll turn up at Bradford, you'll see an Asian girl in a hijab giving an away player some abuse when he's taking a, a corner. <laughs> yeah. I would have said, no way, no way. That 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 happened. I've actually got a picture that I use in a publication. So there's nothing's off limits, nothing's off the table. And I think, you know what it is? It's not going to be an overnight thing. It's not going to be something that we can go, right, yep, from tomorrow, that's not going to happen. It's a relationship that needs to be built up. And you know what? It's also a two-way thing. Let me make this clear. The, the campaign and, and the work I do, no one wants to force people to watch football. No one ever wants to do that. What we want to do is give people the opportunity to say, yeah, I live in Bristol. I live near Bristol Rovers. I've been to a few games. Yes, yeah, my local team. Create that relationship because that relationship in most cases with a lot of these community groups doesn't exist across the country. So if we can create that relationship, create that spark, initiate that coming together, that's step one. And then it's about building relationships. How can the community benefit from being part of the club because there's amazing stuff that the club do, community arm of the club do, the fans do. And also it's about becoming more involved in the city. So it's like anything, you know, in like we talked about isolation and segregation, you know, in certain parts of cities, there's an Asian area, there's a black area, there's a white area, there's an affluent area, there's a poor area. But across all those areas, if you're all gassed, you can trade that common thing that brings you all together. And you know what? That's the magical thing about football because I've seen stadiums and cities that are divided on the match day. Everyone's in the city watching their team. And that's what that gel that brings everyone together. And for me, I think it's actually bigger than a football club because some lower league clubs find it difficult to do. I think that's why a lot of clubs lean on us for support. I mean, I'm in contact with Premier League clubs, Championship clubs, League One clubs every single day about what we can do, how we can build on the success that we've already had councils are involved the governments are involved football governing bodies are involved because there's a lot of benefits of the work that we do to football clubs to the community fan groups and i think it's about that holistic approach coming together and saying okay listen it might not happen overnight we might not see thousands of thousands of bame people or people from different faith groups or the lgbt community like descending upon the mem overnight but what we want to do is we want to say those gates of the mem are open on a weekend if anyone wants to go and watch a game. And you know what? If you come and you enjoy it, come again. Bring your mate. And that, that, that's what it's all about. And I think at a minute, in some parts of the country, that don't exist. It's literally like saying to some people, oh, you ever been watch your local team? No. Why? Just no real need to. Liverpool. So sometimes it's about manipulating that relationship. And I think, um, I don't think we should limit ourselves to like the local community either because let's face it, everyone can jump in a car for 20 minutes and watch a football match. Everyone can jump on a train and watch a football match. Um, so for me, it's about, it's about, you know, being part of something, you know, okay, if I go to watch Bristol Rovers and, and I know for a fact, I'd encourage anyone to do that because I've played in that stadium. I know what the fans are like and, I, and I'd, I'd encourage everyone. I've seen that place uh, when it's been rocking. There were some great games there and, wicked nights I remember one night beating Hull and it was like a start of the season and it was like wow like this place is going to kick off yeah anyone yeah it's, who, it's nothing better really in, in my so, opinion so you get anyone from the community to turn up on a Tuesday night under lights at the men and you win 3-2 the last minute goal anyone who loves the game will love that experience so it's about 
giving them that experience, letting them go away and thinking, you know what, I like a bit of that. I want to get involved. And when you've got campaigns and people that are trying to say, okay, great, get involved. But also, do you realise we could give you some funding to bring the community even closer to the club? Do you realise there's some stuff that the community do, like a walking football programme or something to do with mental health? All of a sudden, it, it opens a lot of doors because what a lot of clubs do is they go, we do great stuff. It's on our Twitter and our website. And I say to them, okay, do these underrepresented communities go on your Twitter or your website? And they say, well, no. Okay, well, that's pointless then. So if you're attracting these people, mm. you need to think outside the box and look at different ways to, to sort of engage. And that's kind of what we do. And, and I, you know, I, I, I would encourage any person in Bristol to experience I've been played there, it's brilliant. And that's why, you know, pre-COVID, we had plans to do a big event in Bristol uh, because I want to do some work um, in the city and I want to get loads of the clubs from the southwest involved. Mm. And um, I'm pretty confident we could see some positive change. And, and like I said, you know, it's not about forcing people to watch football. It's just about opening the gates and saying, look, we're here and we welcome anyone that wants to be, wants to, wants to be a Rovers fan. Yeah, and I, I think it's particularly prescient at the moment, obviously, with, with fans not being allowed to attend matches at the moment and, and the financial ramifications that has. So kind of even moving beyond kind of a, a social cohesion argument, just, just purely a, a commercial argument. If you've got a pocket of fans that could potentially be coming and, and you're not tapping it's quite a crass way to say it, you're not tapping into that market then you're potentially losing out on a lot of um revenue that that you could be getting in so so do you kind of make the the business case to clubs as, as well oh 100 listen that's football let's face it football is an expensive game i mean to be honest i, I think that football owners the amount of money they invest and, and how football can be and how cruel it can be you know, I think you've always got to be thinking about how this club, how our club can be sustainable. And I think you've got to think of the future. And I think you have to have that mindset. But for me also, let's look at it this way. So say, for example, at Bristol, you talked about St. Paul's, that area. How many people in that area are interested in the game that probably would have come? But they get fans for one minute. How many potential players are in that area that could have ended up representing Bristol Rovers. It's like it's like there's some huge pockets of communities in, in certain parts of London. They've got amazing football players, young football players, but the clubs have never really tapped into that talent pool. Mm. And I'm not saying that, you know, you're going to unearth the next David Beckham or Lionel Messi, but well, there's a group of, there's a group of people in a talent pool that could potentially have an, a player that could have gone into the academy and gone through the system and played in the first team. So it's important that clubs have a relationship with every single aspect of their city and town because you just don't know what or who can benefit the club in financial ways, as a player, as fans. So for me, it's like anything. If your club is in Manchester and I'm Manchester United, I want to know everyone in the city. I want to know who they are, what their relationship is with the club and how we can improve that in every single way. Because from a selfish perspective, like I said, you know, you could have the next superstar in one of these community uh, groups. You could have 
uh, you know, an extra two, three hundred fans that can turn up, pay for food and programs. And, and also it's about bringing the community together. So, you know, let's not just rely on our, you know, traditional ways of engagement. Let's always think outside the box because everything, the world, listen, the world's changing. I think football uh, needs to keep up with that change and, and think differently. And um, like I said, I think nowadays there's opportunity. And for me, I would encourage anyone to get involved in your local football team because the benefits of that, the people you meet and, and the romance it can bring. Don't get me wrong. Listen, you know, it's funny because I, 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 we've created loads of new football groups and, and, and fans. And I, I often get emails of like, hey, well, why have you got me involved in, in supporting this club? You know, it's been nothing but misery. We keep losing. The match yeah, is not yeah. good. Like, I, but this is the reality of football. And I'm like, you know what? That's that's the whole beauty of it. It's your club, and that's yeah. it. You know, sometimes there's up, sometimes there's lows, but it's your club, and it's about you know supporting that club regardless. It's not always going to be FA Cup games where you're away at Chelsea. I remember when I started the Bangla Bantam that first year, they beat Chelsea away in the FA Cup. Yeah, and they were like, "Mate, is this what it's like all the time? This is unbelievable." And I'm like, "Trust me, it's not always like that. You know, there's going to be nights where you're." On a Tuesday night, the team from the bottom of the league come in and roll you over, and it's not a nice feeling. But that's exactly what's beautiful about football. You know what? Through thick and thin, you have something that you can support, that you can follow, and it's always there for you. And and, and trust me, I, I say this to any new fan: there's always those highlights. They may they may be they may be few and far between, but there's always those highlights that will get you through sometimes a decade. Of, um, yeah, and and it, it definitely goes beyond that that ninety minutes. I mean, obviously being being a Rovers fan, I've seen more downs and and ups, and and what has kept me going back throughout these years is is the bigger picture, like like you you said, um, and well, the the community aspect of it, and and kind of having that vehicle to go and and meet some mates and have a catch up and and have that that shared interest, um. So I want to like follow up what we've been discussing there and kind of look at it from a different viewpoint. And, and I mean, a particular critique that comes out for projects like for Fans for Diversity is that this is kind of just simply like positive discrimination. I'm sure you've heard that term quite a lot. And, and people from different backgrounds are just free to attend matches. So, so why do we actually need... Um, a project like Fans for Diversity? I think, I mean, positive discrimination is still discrimination. I wouldn't say Fans for Diversity is, is anywhere or anything like that. I think what Fans for Diversity is, is working with football clubs to get better engagement with their community, get better engagement with their fans. Because don't forget, everything I do it's through football fans. Mm. So I won't go into a community and say, right, go and watch football. I won't do that. I will contact the fans of that club and ask them what it's like on a match day, what it's like in their city, in their towns. Can they help us bring that town and city together? So everything we do as a campaign is done through football fans because that's one of the reasons I thought this this campaign is separate from anything else in football. It's the fans... It's the bottom up working with each other because over the years, as a player, as a coach, there's been loads of uh, campaigns, loads of really good stuff that's gone on. And some people take notice and some people don't. But for me, it's about working with the fans to say, okay, can we 
increase the amount of people that are watching football here? Can we increase the diversity of people that are watching football here? And that's because a lot of people feel fearful that coming to Rovers is an unsafe place. Well, let's let, let, let's crack that myth straight away and let's let's show people that no Rovers fans are good people and anyone can come here and have a game of football and enjoy a game of football. And um it's about letting the community know that there's a local football club. And you know what? It might not mean turning up on a match day and watching a game, but it might mean that you've got more supporters of the club in the community. It might mean that if you go to the high street, you've got more Rovers tops walking around. It might mean that people are supportive of the club when the club need help, when the club are doing um, different things in the community. You've got more people that are supporting the club because ultimately everyone, every club, wants as much support as possible. And what we try to do at the campaign is try to engage everyone in the club. Um, if there's, for example, a club, most clubs in the Premier League are all sold out. There's a waiting list, in fact, for some fans. So, yeah, it's not about, right, you can't go, but you can because there's not enough black or Asian people there. That's not the case at all. Yeah, It's just, it's just a case of working with the community and with the fans to say, okay, you know what? There might not be any spaces to come here, but... If we can engage with the local communities, do stadium tours, introduce them to fans, go to fan evenings, they jump on the waiting list. In five, ten years' time, they've got a season ticket because they've done everything in the right way. Great. But if there's no engagement, nothing's ever going to change. And I think what, what else a lot of people don't think about as well is that cities and towns change. The demographics change. I mean, I live in Kent and Newall mm. and Charlton, for example, are, are my two closest clubs. Now, Millwall and Charlton, 10, 20 years ago, are very different areas to what Millwall and Charlton are now. So, for example, Millwall in the south uh, east part of London is predominantly an African area now. Around Millwall, there's a huge African population, there's a huge South American population, and a lot of the traditional Millwall fans have moved further into Kent. So how will that change the club's fan base in 10, 20, 30, 40 years? Because if the local community is changing, the makeup of the local community is changing, I feel there's, in the club, I have to look at a long-term approach to that as well. So there has to be engagement. Uh, it's all about those sort of things. Because in football, you know, with management and playing, there's a lot of short-termism. Everything's about now, or next month, or next win, or next loss. I think if we got rid of that mentality and that mindset, and 20, 30 years ago, looked at a long-term piece of work that will benefit our club and our town or city, I think we'd be in a much, much better place now. So that's what the campaign is trying to do. It's just trying to create an infrastructure and a foundation that actually improves the game. And we already are making some amazing um, impacts. So, so far, so good, but there's still loads of work to do. Yeah, I suppose that the conversation is always changing as society is changing. You kind of talk about pockets of, of new communities um, moving into new areas and, and that kind of brings challenges as, as, as well as potential. Um, one thing that hasn't gone unnoticed and there's been a lot, a lot of debates around the Black Lives Matter movement and football's relationship with it i mean you, you only have to take one look on social media when something about black lives matter is, is posted um whether that's a football club coming out in support of it which which i mean the vast majority of clubs have taken a really strong stance for players taking the knee 
I mean, again, it, it seems like there's, there's a bit of a, a split. I mean, a lot of fans are coming out against the, the taking the knee gesture before matches. Can you can you kind of empathise with, with some fans with that opposition and kind of what's your take on the, the whole taking the knee before a match? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting conversation. I think it's a conversation that's going to come to a head in the next few weeks because we will eventually have fans back in stadiums. And I feel that when players before kickoff take the knee or don't take a knee, you're going to have a reaction because it's happened in America. I'm not sure if, if many understand that in America, there's been NFL basketball matches where players have taken a knee and there's been a negative reaction from the fans, um, which has caused uh, a massive debate um, and discussion. For me, I think it is really important that people understand injustice and they understand the why. You know, why are people taking the knee? Why are governing bodies, football clubs, why are everyone taking a stance? People are taking a stance and people are doing these things because they need to raise awareness of, of injustice that is happening all over the country, all over the world. And I think that's important. I think there needs to be clarity. I think it was great that it started last season. I was surprised that it continued throughout this discussion last couple of days with QPR, not doing it and, and, and having a choice to do it. I think it's really important that fans understand why people are doing it. And there's a lot of problems in our society and in our world. And Black Lives Matter movement has, has, has brought that topic to a head. And what interests me is that this all happened because some video footage came uh, across the, the pond from America around the incident involving George Floyd. Now, incidents like that happen all over the world that are not filmed. There are issues that are happening all the, all the time in different sports in different countries around discrimination, around unconscious bias, around behaviours that are you know, inappropriate and offensive. And I think it's really, really important that that everyone understands that there is a zero tolerance to this sort of behavior and that we all stand together. I think for me, it's always about education. People need to understand, okay, well, why are they doing this? And then what's my opinion of it? So if I'm going to boo that someone is taking a knee, why am I doing that? Is it out of frustration? Is it because of preferable treatment? Well, they're doing that. For not and I think once you learn and actually look in the detail of, of why this is happening and why this movement exists, I think that will change your opinion because, like I said, you know, the issues and the oppression that many black people have over over the years and, and around the world is not just going to stop when people stop taking the knee. It's not a problem that goes away. And this is one of my issues with football and one of my issues with, with a lot of campaigns. There's a load of emphasis on a certain subject for about a week or a month, and then it almost, it almost goes away. Well, the problem's not going away. So for me, it's almost as if, if football's going to take on the challenge of, right, now we're going to get involved in this debate. Well, wait, how long is a piece of string? When does it stop? Because they started, when you stop, that's going to be an issue because the problem's not solved. So I think it's important that people take a knee because we're having these very discussions because society isn't perfect and there's a lot of problems about society. I think it's important that people acknowledge that. A lot of people look at their own circles, their own life, and they don't see issues they're looking at it from their own perspective but i would always encourage anyone to understand and look into the reasons why people 
take the knee. Look into the reasons why so many football different uh, you know, industries are very, very strong about this because in life, if you keep doing a thing, same things, you get the same results. And you know, we're, we're talking about some of these issues that are happening in 2020 that shouldn't be happening 50, 60 years ago. So it needs to change. And if it means taking a knee every single game, then, that, that, then so be it because it's a, it's a symbol that change needs to happen. And um, for me, I sometimes feel that, that if people feel strongly about it, there's an arena and a way to articulate that than just booing because that's quite that's, that's an easy thing to do, isn't it? Oh, I don't agree with that. I boo. Mm. I don't agree with that. Well, why don't you agree with that? Have a conversation about it because actually, you're you know that, that's someone's opportunity to express you know their opinions and, and 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 how they feel, and I think that's important. I think anyone who takes a stand like that, it's it's an opportunity to express their deep emotion. And I think we have to, as human beings, respect that. So booing is, is, is disrespect. You're disrespecting someone's opinion. And, and you could say, well, this is my opinion. But there's always a, a more articulate and mature way of, of doing that. But I don't think the, the, the taking any will last forever because I think even just on that, you know, you could get some pockets of the community saying, okay, well, like the Jewish community, for example, what about some of the issues that we face? You know, will you support a campaign on, on, on some of the issues that we face and on some of the things that we would like to do? So I think it's about showing support for, for discrimination in general and showing a support for um, everyone coming together to just try and be better human beings. And uh, Black Lives Matter, it could be talk around homophobia. I think if it can spark conversation, it can make anybody just look in the mirror and just say, okay, well, Am I the best human being I can be? Do I make people feel welcome? Do I look down at people? Do I look up at people? Am I, am I good with everyone? I think, I think anything that can do that is important because I think that's all we need to do. If we can just make the world a better place and get everyone to be on the same sort of hymn sheet, I think it's really important because I think some people are oblivious as to, as to why you know, some of these conversations are happening and, and some of these um, movements are, are in place. Yeah, and I think we're we're seeing this a lot more recently. But just the polarization of of debate is um, more prevalent. I don't know if if social media's got um, a big part to play in that. But yeah, like like you say, it's it's looking at the the context. You kind of just just look on social media that, that advise people not to spend too much time doing it because it can drive you a bit a bit mad but it's, it's kind of it, it's like two camps it's like I'm for this I'm against this so I'm going to be against you whereas there's often as normally is more nuance to it and it's, it's getting that that information and, and education out then and to make sure there's an actual conversation going on because yeah i think there's there's way too much polarization going on so 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 in terms of black lives matter and football where do you see it going from here you mentioned the qpr statement and and les ferdinand in particular he's, he's quoted as saying the taking of the knee has reached a good point of good pr but little more than that the message has now been lost it is now not dissimilar to a fancy hashtag or a nice pin badge so two two parts to this question where do you think it's going to go in relation to football and and where should it go i think it's all about action and i, and I, 
empathise with, with, with what Les Ferdinand is saying because Les Ferdinand's a, a black football player that's endured racism throughout his career. I've heard him speak, I've listened to some of his stories and he wants change. We all want change. And I think it's about what that change looks like. So yes, people took the knee. It was a great symbol, a strong symbol from football, a highlight that there is a zero tolerance to discrimination in this country in regards to football. And uh, football wants to be an environment and an industry where it is inclusive. Um, but people can take a knee for the next 10, 20 years. But when it comes to real action, real change, I think that's where the investment needs to be in actually conversation and, and looking at those issues. And I always encourage anyone who has opposing views to be able to express their views, but articulate them in a mature and responsible way, because we're not all going to agree on everything. I think that's, that's, that's really important that we, we understand that. Even if something that I feel strongly about is 100% right, I'm not oblivious to realize that there will be some people that will, will, will disagree with that and think it's wrong. But for me, there's always a mature and respectful, decent way to articulate your views. And there's a volume, there's a platform to do that. Um, and I think social media is, is, is not particularly used well enough to do that. But I think it's all about action. So, yes, it's a great symbol, but it is just a symbol. We need to work with clubs. Clubs need to work with fans. And everyone in football needs to work together to make sure that what what has happened, and there's been loads of uh, talk and dis discussions about it, now needs to turn into action and, and, and make sure that we are not having these same conversations and symbolic movements in five and ten years' time. And I think that's that's the frustration that I'm hearing from a lot of these mm. ex-players. Like, you know, well, we've been doing this and we're all for it, but what happens next? And, and that's the key for me. And that's why, you know, for me, I'm proud to say that as an individual, fans for diversity is making real change. And, you know, when people can say, oh, yeah, we've done this and we've supported this, uh, we've genuinely been responsible for, for getting people watching football for getting fans to meet other fans, for trying to change the landscape of football and make it as open and welcoming as possible. Um, so we'd encourage everyone to get involved in our, in our campaign and just support everyone that has an issue and, and empathise with everyone's story and, and opinions because I think from a selfish perspective, everyone look at, looks at their own life and their own circle and thinks, well, there's, I don't see there being a problem. But mm. have you ever sat down and listened to some of the uh, experiences of underrepresented groups or you know people who have told about some of their life experiences and their experiences with football and game or going to football unfortunately for me these are things i hear all the time it's the nature of the role and and i know there is a massive issue in society and in football that we can all contribute to working towards getting to a better place so it's about that um listen like i said not everyone's going to agree it's going to divide the camp but i think there's always a mature and responsible way to express your your opinions and not kind of you know demean or rubbish um what what people feel strongly about i think it's it's not right to do so yeah i i feel like we could discuss this for hours and hours it, it's such a complex and, and a fascinating discussion and, and as you've alluded to a discussion that's, that's gone on far too too long so it'd be interesting to see what what happens off off the back of black lives matter and and yeah you're right in what you're saying 
will there be actual action and and change off the back of it? I mean, only only time will tell. I'm, I'm very conscious that you have a, a game tonight, Amar, and your capacity is a oldest shots assistant manager. So, so we start to round things up. But I've got to ask you, Amar, how on earth did you manage to sign Ross McCormack? <laughs> You know what, anything, anything to do with you? Was your name the, the big draw for Ross to join you? You know what? It's, it's, it's quite amazing. I've not heard from quite a few friends and family um, over the last few years. Everyone has rang me up and asked me the same thing. <laughs> How on earth did you sign Ross McCormack? And, um, one, of my, one of my good friends um, is a massive Leeds fan. Loves Ross, and um, yeah, the literally the minute it broke, genuinely could literally was like right, I'm I'm coming to every order shot game, and I, and it's been an amazing because listen, he's a player that I I adore, and I think you know I've I've actually watched him and I've been I've played in the same team, like played on the same pitch as him. What a player and um, someone who's had an amazing career. Probably I'd say one of the best ever players not to play in the Premier League, um, but. You know what, life, uh, you know what, it's timing, it's life, it's circumstance, but we, um, one of Ross's teammates, Craig Tanner, plays with us and um, absolutely loves it in all the shot. And we try to do things right and the right way. And Ross was just looking for a change, looking back to get back into into playing football. And, and for him, you know, I, I, I hope you don't mind me saying it, but it wasn't a money thing. It wasn't a status thing because let's be honest, he could have probably gone anywhere he wanted to. He just wanted to, at this stage of his career with his family situation, get his head down and enjoy his football, fall in love with football again. And uh, we convinced him that Aldershot is a perfect place to do that. And the fans would absolutely adore him. So I'm absolutely buzzing to, to see how that progresses and see how he uh, you know, fits into the team. We had a, a decent year last year and, um, you know, it's frustrating because it's like the league's two weeks away and it's like, you know, want to get back in, want the fans to come and watch. But there's a big question mark over that. But listen, timing, luck, and um, you know, I've always been a good salesman. So I'd like to think I'd have, uh, you know, me and the gaffer are quite persuasive with, with, with how good it is at all the shot and it managed to get him over the line. Yeah, what what an absolute coup that is. Um, what are your aims for the season then for, for Oldershot? Are you, you're going to be gunning for promotion now? It, it's changed, isn't it? Because literally, I mean, I don't think people realise the financial issues that we have. I mean, when we took over, we got relegated into the National League South. Um, and then two weeks prior to the start of the season, Gateshead went bust. So we found ourselves in the National League last year with a National League South budget, but we finished 16th. And we thought, okay, great. That's a great start. Um, you know, build on that. And then COVID hit. So more more financial issues. Um, and then obviously, and everyone thinks that we're, you know, we, we've robbed a bank. But trust me, that's, that's not the case. So for us, it's about, it's about slow progression. But for me, you know, I absolutely love this side of, of my life. And I love working at a decent club and developing players. And, you know, we've had a few players that have come to us last year that we signed that have moved on into League One done really well so we're creating a little bit of a name for ourselves and for me it's steps but listen having someone like Ross McCormack will always uh, will always help and if he can get anywhere near the kind of form he showed over the last sort of five to ten years him being a bit of a vidi printer uh, legend 
you, you, you just never know. You just never know. And to be honest, I always say to people when I when I signed at Dagenham, I think we were eighty to one to, to win the league, and we did. Um, so I think football is in a place where you know what anything is possible, and and that's what we say to our players: if we can stay fit, we can keep everyone happy and everyone healthy. Who knows? But listen, it's all about small steps and progress for us. So a top half finish will be amazing. Extra marks for Viddy Printer legends. I think that's probably one of the best compliments I've ever heard a strike get. I'm, I'm definitely going to have to use that one in the future. Anwar, um, thanks so much for coming on today. Really, really fascinating stuff. Obviously, best of luck for the season. With Oldershot, hopefully Ross can get you one or two goals. I'm, I'm sure he will. Um, how can people find out more about Fans for Diversity and, and the work you do? So social media is always a, a great cue. So I'm on Twitter and Instagram as NYU01. So please definitely give me a follow, even if you're just interested in the campaign and want to keep an eye on it. Uh, because it's really cool stuff. Obviously, the FSA website and Kick It Out website, there's a lot more info on the Hearns Club City campaign videos and, and loads of really cool stuff. Um, but obviously, if anyone wants to catch up with me, I'll be at an all shot game, home and away. And you never know, listen, if, if we can get into that later stages of the FA Cup and, and we have that draw, you know, when people ask me, who would you like? Yes, obviously, uh, Manchester United and Arsenal. I would love to come to the Memphis. Is, is that just because we're a, a soft touch and it would it'd be an easy win for you guys? Well, that as well, but also <laughs> it would just be good to, to be back at the Mems. Like I said, yeah. listen, I've, seen, I've, I've, been, I've been playing when that place has been rocking. And um, it's always good to go back to, to old clubs where you've had really good times. And I just feel like, you know, to go back to a club as a, as a manager, having played for that, for that team, just doing that, you know, that drive into the Mem on the match day and all that, it will, it will bring back some great memories. So, listen, um, in the FA Cup, uh, you know, when we, uh, if we're both in it, hopefully, yeah, uh, keep an eye out for the show. Mate, it'd be great to have you back. Um, so there we have it, Gasheads. Thanks for listening to this A Chat With episode with my guest, Anwar Udin. If you never want to miss an episode, do hit that subscribe button and also give us a review and rating as this helps us out massively. All that leaves me to say is up the gas. Up the gas.